Well, this summer, we have been going through Psalm 23, learning about some of the promises of God, about his care, about his promise of protection, about his promise for rest and goodness and mercy and blessing. And all of these things you hear and you see them as beautiful and you long for them. The problem is when the promises of God meet the pains of everyday life. See, as much as the promise that we've been sitting in has been a protection and care and blessing, many, if not all of us, see in our lives or in the lives of those around us more pain and suffering than we feel like we can bear. As we close this series on Psalm 23, we actually turn to the words of Jesus and see how he intersected these two things, the promises of God with the pains of everyday life. So if you have a Bible or device, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 35. Matthew 9, starting at verse 35, it says this, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He sees the pains of everyday life. They were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And into that moment, what he proclaims is the kingdom of God. This, apparently, is where the promises of God meet the pains of everyday life. How do you feel when you hear that? Do you feel the excitement? Do you feel liberation? Do you feel freedom? Do you feel as if the problem has been addressed? Do you feel as if the promises of God have truly met the pains of life? My guess is probably not. If you're like me, you're met with either skepticism or indifference. On the skepticism side, you see this message that brought healing for every disease and every affliction, something that not even our modern advances in medicine claim to do. You think maybe Jesus was capable of healing a couple people, but not everyone. But more often than not, I think we just sit in the world of indifference. We gloss over it. We think of it as some ancient, old, dusty text, or maybe we've heard this phrase too many times. It lacks the power that it seems to have in Jesus' day. The kingdom, of God, the kingdom of God was, in fact, Jesus' favorite topic, and it brought with it a message of power and actual actions and miracles of power as well. So what are we missing? Why do, do we just kind of hear it and it goes in one ear and out the other? What we need to do is we need to actually turn to a greater context. A few weeks ago, my wife and I had the privilege of being at the Louvre in Paris. Famously, the Mona Lisa is housed there, but also centuries worth of art and structures and sculptures. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. When I get there, I don't want to just be looking at random artifacts that I don't understand. So the Louvre has these audio guides and I find a little, it's a, it comes as a Nintendo 3DS, which if you don't know that it's a video game device, it looks like a tiny laptop that you open up. It has a touchscreen, it has some buttons. And then these like large headphones that you put on your head and you kind of walk around and you get to click on different pieces of art and it gives you a map around the place. And as I'm doing this, my wife pulls out her phone and she takes a picture of me. And as she takes the picture of me, I don't need to ask her why she's doing it. I, I already know what's going on in her mind. She's looking at me with my big headphones and my mini laptop in hand, walking around the Louvre. And she's thinking, wow, my husband is so cool. 
I didn't have to ask her. I just know that's what she was thinking. And that is my story. And I'm sticking to it. Regardless of how goofy I looked, what was helpful was to have knowledge and understanding about the context behind these different pieces of art. It wasn't just a random piece that I had to try and interpret on my own. Here's my general issue with how we approach scripture. We come to a passage like Matthew chapter 9, and we learn of the kingdom of God, and we rip it out of any sense of its historical understanding. As goofy as that mini laptop, that Nintendo 3DS was, I went in there and I actually understood what each of these, sim what each of these pieces represented. That's what we want to do here. So we're going to go to a significant place in Isaiah, a previous prophet, and we're going to do a bit of a history lesson. It's September. We're going back to school. We're in this together. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 52, starting at verse 7. It says this, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, to put this in some more context, to pull out our little Nintendo 3DS, let me give you a graph to understand where this is coming on within the story of God. Back in January, we were doing a series in Exodus. You will see that at the beginning of the graph. It happened in approximately 1400 BC. Israel had been in slavery for around 400 years. At around 1400 BC, they were rescued from captivity. They were promised peace. They were promised to be a royal priesthood. They were promised to become a holy nation. It took 400 years to see that actually come to fruition. They had to cling to that promise even in the midst of the pain of everyday life. Then comes King David around 1000 BC. He's the one who penned around this time, Psalm 23, declaring the promises of God, being his shepherd, being the one who cares for him, being the one who protects him. Once again, promises of God on full display. But what follows is just years and centuries of failure from kings, from from the people. There's a split in the kingdom. There's oppression that comes. And ultimately, it comes to the year 587 BC, when Jerusalem, the capital of the nation, is sieged and overthrown by the kingdom of Babylon, and the people are taken away and exiled into a foreign land. This is the history that we find ourselves in. So in Isaiah 52, 7, when it says, when this message of the kingdom of God comes and says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet who are the feet of him who brings good news or of the feet of him who brings the gospel. It's about a messenger coming in the state of a world that is marked by warring kingdoms and bringing good news. Pull back to the graph. This is what it was. This is the initial picture. This circle right here is when Isaiah was, was speaking. It was right at the fall of the nation of Israel, right around the time when exile was coming. What they are longing for in this moment is that there would be a time when the God of Israel would act decisively to overthrow powerful, oppressive, unjust kingdoms, and specifically the kingdom of Babylon. Your God reigns. It's the good news of the kingdom. The war is over. The messenger is running across Israel, proclaiming from the battlefield, victory has come. Peace is here. Salvation has been accomplished. Your God, Israel, reigns over the gods of Babylon. In Jesus' day, to proclaim this gospel was not to proclaim it over the gods of Babylon, but over the gods of Rome. The kingdom of God is here. 
Caesar is not the one on the throne. The unjust taxation that comes, the unfair circumstances, the oppressive rule of Rome over Israel is over. What good news. What does it look like today, though? Today, we don't really live under the world of monarchy. I mean, more recently, we might be talking about it because you've maybe been watching The Crown or with the passing of Queen Elizabeth, some more conversation comes up. But we don't really think of kings and queens and monarchs and kingdoms. It's just foreign language to us. But if you had to picture today who would be on the throne, who would you pick? To me, I think the clear answer in the Western world is ourselves. Every one of us, this is the idea of the Western world, is in control of our own path. We get to choose our own direction. We have the opportunity to carve our own destinies. This is what the Western world is built on. I think this is also why the kingdom of God is so difficult for us to understand. Listen, if you're in Israel in the year 587 and you're hearing a message that the kingdom of God is here, the good news of this kingdom, instant, instant joy. Babylon's overthrown. In Jesus' day, Kingdom of God is here, instant joy. Rome is overthrown. Today, kingdom of God is here. Well, if I'm the one on the throne and the kingdom of God is here, that means I am overthrown. The good news of Jesus today would sound something like this. Good news, you're not on the throne. God is. Truthfully, that doesn't sound much like good news. It sounds more like defeat. It sounds more like a loss. It sounds like giving lots up. I think when we realize this, we are coming dangerously close to what the good news of Jesus is. Back in Matthew chapter 9, what we see is that Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Notice this. Jesus' love and orientation and place where he runs to is not the people who have mastered their own destiny. It's not the self-assured, the self-absorbed, the self-made women and men who are marked by success in life. He comes to the harassed and the helpless. He comes to those in need and in desperation. He comes to those marked by pain and suffering. Those, he comes to those who struggle with how the promises of God meet the pains of everyday life. Let me just say this again and put it on the screen for you. Jesus has compassion on the harassed and the helpless. What does this have to do with the kingdom? Well, it means it is the overthrow of a kingdom that is setting up a lot of people in our day for harassment and for a sense of helplessness. You know, it's the overthrow of a kingdom that promises that you can be whoever you want to be while thrusting in your face images of comparison of people you will never measure up to. It's the overthrow of a kingdom that says you can do whatever you want while whispering in your ear that you will never be good enough. It's the overthrow of a kingdom that has given us a fragile sense of identity of insecurity. It's the overthrow of a kingdom that is marked by rising senses of isolation and loneliness, marked by rising senses of anxiety and mental illness, marked by rising senses of fear 
and uncertainty about the future, marked by rising senses of hopelessness. It is an overthrow of the kingdom of the self. It is, in fact, good news. It's good news for this reason. Good news, you're not on the throne. God is. Good news, you are not in control of every single detail of your life. Good news, you do not have to perfectly align your life for financial success, for family success. You're not responsible for every single detail. Good news, your value is not determined by how successful you are in relationships, in your workplace, in what you do. Good news, you are not on the throne. God is. See, Jesus says that he comes for the harassed and the helpless the ones who are like sheep without a shepherd. I love this image because I think it helps us strike at the issue of our day. When we hear the word sheep describing people today, what do we think of? We don't think of a positive thing. We think of people, it's an insult. We think of people who can't think for themselves, who just follow along blindly. It shows us really the struggle of understanding this kingdom. Because for Jesus, sheep is the image he uses to describe what it means to follow him, to follow his guidance, to listen to his voice, and to obey him. But in a world that elevates the sense of self and independence and choosing your own path and carving out your own future, sheep is just an insult. So hear this again. Jesus has compassion on the harassed and the helpless. This is not a message about showing how good you can be in the future. This is a message saying, when you are at your absolute worst, when you feel your most inadequate, when you have your greatest sense of your own failure, your own sin, your inability to measure up, at that exact moment, God views you not with disappointment, but with compassion. See, if we want to encounter God today, if we want to witness the place where the promises of God finally intersect with the pains of everyday life, it does not mean tying up our boots and trying harder. It means stepping into the acknowledged reality of being helpless. An encounter with the living God does not come as a result of human excellence, but of human weakness. Makes sense then where Jesus takes us next. Verse 37, then he, that is Jesus, said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. But we struggled with this verse. The harvest is plentiful. A desire to enter the kingdom of God is real. It's large. My experience in life has suggested to me the polar opposite. What I see outside the church is, again, skepticism or indifference toward Jesus himself, towards Christianity, towards the church, towards this entire system, towards this worldview, towards this hope. I don't see excitement, longing. I see challenge. And I see within the church also, like just a general sense of fear about the future, of a struggle to hold on to faith, not a confidence about a plentiful harvest. I think the issue is, though, my vision of what a plentiful harvest looks like is very different. What Jesus has just seen 
is not a whole bunch of people who are lining up to say, yeah, I'm ready to step into a living relationship with you, God. What he's just seen is people who are harassed and helpless. And he says, this is the definitive marker of a plentiful harvest, of a place where God's spirit can work powerfully. All of a sudden, you look at our day, you redefine it around looking for people who are harassed and helpless, and man, does it open up. We know people, and we perhaps are people ourselves, who feel this sense of being harassed and helpless, who feel bombarded by the circumstances around us, and who feel helpless to these circumstances, who feel like we do not measure up, who feel like we cannot be enough. There's a prevailing sense of failure, of bombardment, of even just feeling stuck. And in this, Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He redefines it. And then he says, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. His response is to send people out. But I think we need to be wary of a significant gap that sometimes we make in churches and as Christians in general. It's this. This is a quote from Andrew Root. Unable to recognize the event of the living God's encounter in a living world, Instead of asking its people to seek God, the church anxiously asks them to expend energy in activities that will keep the congregation afloat. We need more, or we need to have more volunteers. We need more new members. We need more young families, more young adults, more really committed people. Oftentimes, this passage is used to that end. Listen, the people of the world, we ourselves, we are all harassed and helpless. What we need is to be sent out as laborers. And so we rise up and we have these calls to be small group leaders, to be uh, prayer leaders, to be kids leaders. We need volunteers. Get involved in this church. The problem is we've skipped a step. This is the step. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. See, what we need to remember is that prayer launches ministry. Prayer launches ministry. It actually precedes ministry. It precedes the act of serving and being sent. It starts with prayer. And not some sort of like obligatory prayer. You know, like to say grace before a meal. Would You would say, come Lord Jesus, be our guest. And this food to us, be blessed. And you kind of check a box and you eat your 10 gallons of chocolate milk and your pizza or whatever. No, this is a praying earnestly. This is a persistence. This is continually coming to prayer and out of that place mission, being sent out into the world for the sake of the harassed and the helpless comes. I have seen this at work in my own life. Listen, I've shared before that I just, a few years ago, there was just something impressed upon me of a sense of calling to pray. One of the struggles of my life has been in praying. I haven't always seen a bunch of fruit. And so that has shaped my vision of prayer. It's pushed me into praying for the sake of people I may never meet, for future generations that might not be alive yet, and just believing that the God of all creation is using my prayers for good. But there's one area where I consistently see direct results from praying. And it's actually in praying for our neighbors. I've had this happen time and time and time again, 
where in prayer and in praying for God's work in the lives of our neighbors, all of a sudden doors are thrust open and it feels like we just get to walk into conversations, into friendships, into meals, and even sometimes into specific conversations about the work of Jesus. And then all of a sudden I am frustrated because these conversations no longer exist and they aren't happening anymore. I'm trying to find them and I'm working for them, but they don't exist. And then I remember that I stopped praying. I was like, oh, okay, let me pray into it. And I start praying into it again. And all of a sudden, the doors open up again. I've shared this with some of you before. Since I've shared it with you, this has happened again. Once again, I went through that cycle and I was realizing, man, I just, I'm not seeing the type of interaction that I long for with my neighbors. And I realized I haven't been praying. Okay, so I'm just going to go into my bedroom. I'm going to just spend some time in prayer, longing for God to work in our neighborhood. And as I'm done, I come out and I'm looking for my wife and I can't find her. And I think to call her name where she could be in her house. And then I remember that we live in 430 square feet and I can stand in one place and I can see the entire house. So there's no point in calling out her name. And her phone's there. So I'm really confused. I'm like, well, what happened? Did she just evaporate into thin air? So I open the door and I look both directions and there's no sign of her. And I just have this like confused look on my face and I shut the door. I'm looking around. And all of a sudden through the door, I look up across the street into my neighbor's living room. And there is my wife just with this cheeky grin on her face, smiling at me, standing beside my neighbor, just waving. As I had been praying, there was a moment where she saw a neighbor outside, had a conversation. She went up there and was hanging out with them. I say that as one story of many times of something similar happening. I have seen the direct connection in, of praying into, God, would you, would you work in the lives of my neighbors, work in the lives of my coworkers, and then actually seeing it, the doors be thrust open. Prayer launches ministry. And I love what comes directly afterwards. See, there's chapters that come in scripture that weren't there originally. They're helpful for us to know where we can to reference different parts of scripture. But originally, this would have just been read continually through. And so this next part in chapter 10 would be read directly afterwards. It says this, chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. And he, that is Jesus, called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these, first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. First thing that we need to recognize here is some familiar language. Verse 1. He called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority, already kind of kingdom type of language, over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Does that sound familiar? It's the verse we started in. It's chapter 9, verse 36. Jesus himself came proclaiming the kingdom of God and healed every disease and every affliction. See, what's happening is Jesus comes as the one who, in meeting the pains of life, is allowing the promises of God to intersect with them. And now he's allowing his disciples to do the exact same thing. In fact, what we are told is that these disciples are given the name apostles. What does the word apostle mean? It literally means sent one. 
they are sent out. They just prayed, Lord, send someone, and they were sent themselves. Now, here's what I think is so beautiful. So, we've been in this series in Psalm 23, hearing about the promises of God, about his goodness, his mercy, his protection, his care, his promises of rest, all these types of things. Jesus comes and sees people in desperate need of this. He sees sheep without a shepherd. So, what does he do? How does he care for creation? He sends out the apostles. Or in other words, God cares for creation by sending shepherds. This is God's way until the time that Jesus returns. This is God's way of continuing to care for those in need, for those who experience the pain of life more than the promises of God by sending out shepherds. What I love is the order in which this happens. God's just told them, hey, pray earnestly that God would send out laborers. Pray earnestly. Spend time in prayer. And then the very next thing that happens is like, oh yeah, you've been praying. Time to get out there. There's no two-tier, yeah, you're going to be the people who are praying and then someone else is going to get out there. This is the natural progression. Here in the words of Pete Gray, a house of prayer that is inaccessible, unwelcoming, and disengaged from the lost is failing to be a true house of prayer, no matter how many hours of intercession it might clock up doing the way, during the way, sorry. Those who pray continually without engaging missionally are simply missing the point. These two things are connected. And it's the way that God works in the world to heal and to bring restoration. Today, in our in-person services, we are going to be partaking in communion. It's an act that remembers what Jesus has done. It's an act that remembers the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's an act that remembers that the ultimate encounter with God happens in the place of deep pain. We've been talking today about how the promises of God meet the pains of everyday life. What we see is that the greatest moment of God's work in history up to this point comes in the Son of God dying. In, God, in the Son of God himself, in Jesus of Nazareth, becoming the one who is harassed and helpless on a cross, subjected to oppression. That in the place of absolute weakness, this is where God is revealed. This is what we've seen all the way through. Think of the quote of Miroslav Volf. As a rule, the kingdom of God enters the world through the back door of servants' shacks, not through the main gate of the master's mansions. This is a message. This message as a kingdom is a message of death to the self. It's a message of entering in weakness and in desperation and helplessness, praying to the God and saying, I can't do this on my own. I need you, Lord. Entering that type of space, being sent out in selfless service, not for our own sake, but for the sake of others, and ultimately expressed in Jesus. What we're going to talk about in person is that as we take the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, what we're going to talk about is this is a participation in that work of Jesus. It's participation. It's taking on. You are, what, the image, it's pretty visceral. You're eating his body so that you participate in his body. You kind of become, in the words of Paul, you actually become the active body, the hands and feet of Christ. What does that mean? It means that in participating in this life, you are becoming the body of Christ, his active hands and feet. 
We're given the names of these 12 apostles, people, these, these 12 men who had great influence and position in the early church. We are not attempting to say that we are the 12 apostles, but what we are saying is that we are joining in a lineage of followers of Jesus, like these ones that are just mentioned to be Jesus's active hands and feet, his shepherds in the world. And how does that happen? It happens through the three things we've mentioned through human helplessness and weakness, through persistent, earnest prayer, and being sent out as shepherds. So the final thing that I want to leave you with today is just a practical step to lean into this. And this is it. Carve out 20 minutes once a week to pray for your neighbors or your coworkers or whatever space you have where you interact with people who would be considered harassed and helpless, who would be sheep without a shepherd, who are the people whom Jesus would love to see them come into his, his ever-growing family. Pray. Pray. And just allow that space to be seen as a place where God will meet you and will begin to work and begin to allow the promises of God to meet the pain of everyday life. Let me pray. Father, we love you. And what we ask right now is the thing that you told us to pray earnestly, in, earnestly into. Lord, we know, or we want to believe that the harvest is plentiful, that there are genuinely people out there, and perhaps even ourselves, who are in desperate need right now for you to work. And the thing that you teach us to pray into in that regard is for people to be sent out. So Lord, send us. Send us out into your creation as your shepherds, drawing the promises of God into the pain of everyday life. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.